Man, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much, church, for the gifts and for your kindness to us. We really do appreciate that. Some of you might remember us and some of you might not. We're the Lewis family. God's called us to Papua New Guinea. We've been there for three years, establishing Living by Faith Baptist Church in Yonki in a village called Anasina, working with the Kasuk people. There's about 25 to 30,000 people in that people group right there. And we're centrally located, which is a tremendous blessing. We're nine kilometers off the Highlands Highway, which is the only highway in New Guinea. And so we can go and come as we please, which is a tremendous blessing, and it gives us a lot more opportunities in the ministry as well. We really started working with that <coughs> church there in 2015. <coughs> and when we got there, I'll just be transparent with you, totally transparent. Uh, we thought to ourselves that, man, we're just going to rip and roar and tear it up, man, and save everyone and lead everyone to Jesus. And in three or four years, the whole country would be led to the Lord, and it'd be fine, and we'd do something else. And Man, that was the stupidest thing we'd ever thought of in our lives because God's work isn't done in the way. His ways aren't our ways, and His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And when we're walking in the flesh, man, we get, tend to think a lot of that. We put God in a box, and He don't work that way. So it was a big blessing. That first year and a half was a very difficult time for us. The Lord really broke us down and put us through a lot of challenges and trials that we needed to go through to humble us so that we could understand experimentally the verse in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, which says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's nothing that we can do that can make the work of God go forward and Amen. see people saved. It's God. He's Amen. the only one who can do it. It's the spirit of God working in people's lives. And so we had to get out of the way there. God humbled us. Uh, I think of John chapter 6 when the Lord, right before he fed that 5,000 men, and there was many more than that. Some people said the 20,000 people were there. He, had to took, he took that bread, and what did he do with it first? Yeah. He broke it. Well, that's a good picture of us. We need to be broken before we can be used effectively in the service Amen. of the Lord. Amen. And so we're that bread there. And that was exciting to see the Lord work when we started the church, started working with the church. There was about 15 people there. We didn't have a clue about the cultures and customs and uh, the language either, but the Lord worked and blessed. Two months after we got there, the missionary we were supposed to be working with left. He had Lyme's disease, and it got to the place where we had to leave the field. So he was gone until the last month before we came back here. He's gone the entire time. But the Lord worked it out, and he intervened in our behalf. Thank, thank you so much for your prayers. Your thank prayers you. really made such a difference. We had no one to turn to, no one to look to but God. And, man, we had to look to him every day. He brought us to our knees every day, and we could feel and sense your prayers every day. God started working in people's lives, and for a while there we felt like we were spinning our wheels, and I'm sure everyone goes through that in the ministry where you just sort of feel like, man, I'm not accomplishing much. We're working really hard doing what we need to do and pray, and the church got together. Man, probably two or three months after we got there, we started working. There was probably two or three guys, and that was all we had, and we started praying. And then a little bit after that, probably six months after we got there, we started marking Friday as our day to fast and pray. We had two prayer services on Saturday and a fasting day on Friday. We'd fast till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then after that, the church would meet together, and we'd pray till 6 that evening, and then we'd break our fast. Sometimes we'd eat in our cookhouse in our little kitchen, that bush kitchen on our property there, and so we'd build a fire, and we'd break the fast that way, and it was just a blessed time of fellowship. Sometimes we'd stay until 10, 11 o'clock at night there eating and fellowshipping and talking about the Word of God, and slowly but surely, we didn't see lightning bolts pop down and see everyone getting saved because of that, but well, we started seeing God break us down and work in our hearts because He's got to work in you before He can work through you. And man, He started working in our hearts and in the lives of the Christians. We started realizing our testimony wasn't what it should be as a church, 
We realize that our testimony is we, re- we represent Jesus Christ. And so when our testimony is bad, we make Jesus Christ look bad. And no one wants a dirty Jesus. And so we had to clean our lives up. And God started doing that through his word and through these times of prayer. Man, God started really working. And we had a youth camp in 2015. Brother Dave's not there. The missionary's not there. His son was there. And the day before we started youth camp, we'd finish our Sunday services, got done with our services, finished it. We had just eaten, and we're all in our, there was probably 20 people, 20 people from Australia who'd come over to help Sam, the Brother Dave's son, and his wife do this camp with us. And we're all sitting in our bush house there, and all of a sudden we hear this, and it scared me, man, all the hair on the back of my neck, just like a dog when it sees something new, man. And I go running out of my house, and I see all these people come running by our house. And on the other side, each side of the station, they have bush knives, machetes, and they have bows and arrows. And, and they're all screaming at the top of their lungs. And I said, what is going on here? Oh, God, what's going on? And they start fighting in our village. The village behind us had come down because our village, the village behind us called Abanama had accused our village of, of witchcraft because someone in their village had some sickness come up. And so just because of the culture, the way it is, this happens every day in Papua New Guinea. They came down and said, if you don't pay us money for that accusation, then we're going to fight with you. And there's 750 people from Abonamo came down, men and women. They're all armed, women too. Those women are the worst ones as well. They come right down into the middle. No lie, I'm being serious, not knocking anyone, just the reality in that culture. They go right down into the middle of our village. (laughs) And... They, it just, it didn't go well. It started getting really hot. They started debating pretty strongly there. And our guys started realizing this is going to go south quick like. So they told their wives, quickly go to our houses and start secretly getting our bows and arrows and bush knives over here. Man, they get that going. And then suddenly one of the uh, uh, young guys from Abonamor gets mad and he takes his bush knife and he cuts our chief's banana tree. And that's taboo. You don't do that. And when he did it, he said some curse words in their tribal language. And our chief, he's an older man, he jumps to his feet and he said in talk in their tribal language, they call it talk place in pigeon. He said, he he said basically told his people, I want every one of those people dead. And in our village, what the chief says goes. And they'll they'll die doing what the chief says. And so these we had only 75 men in our village. And they ran that 750 people right out of the village and pushed him over to the border of their village, right on the road there. And so I look at Sam while this is going on, Brother Dave's son, and he looks at me. This is a missionary kid. He's growing up. He's 22 at the time. And I look at him and I said, Sam. And he looks at me and he goes, Tim. I said, what would your dad do in a situation like this? And he said, well, usually where my dad used to be at, when they started fighting, he'd just get in his vehicle, drive out into the middle of them. They see the white man, they stop fighting. <laughs> so guess what Tim does? It's a great idea, man. Let's go. And he's, I can't believe how stupid I was looking back. Hindsight, man, a life. Is a, just God's grace is sufficient, man. It's tremendous. He said, Tim, I'll drive you out there. You're the missionary. You hop on the back of our open back ute and you stand up up there. And when they see you, they'll stop fighting. Then we got right into the middle there, and those people didn't stop fighting. They used the car as a shield. And we had 10 guys on the front with bows and arrows shooting at 10 guys in the back, and I'm standing there, and I, didn't, I wasn't screaming or yelling. I was just like, <coughs> in shock, man. And about, it took me about two minutes. Like, I'd never seen the like before. I grew up in a ghetto. We had drive-by shootings and whatnot. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an everyday occurrence. But I thought, man, nothing. I'm not, not going to see nothing new. 
I had never seen nothing like that, man. And they're shooting at each other. And Sam sees what's going on, and he pulls the vehicle forward and gets it out of the way. And me and Sam hop down and hop out. And <clears throat> Anyhow, the long story short, the Lord really used that. We were, we were out there for eight, ten hours. It started at two. We got, I got in the house at 12, the day before the camp. And we had 570 campers come that time. And the Lord just intervened. We were in there in the middle of them the whole day. Like the chief, the chief's son, who's about 45, 50, he's going to take over soon. He's standing there. Me and him are standing at that. They call it um, uh, Mouse Blur Road, our head Blur Road. And that means it's basically the place where their road leads into their village. And we're both standing there. And he's standing with his bow and arrow. And he's holding me, and I'm holding him. And he just keeps, the, there's a mountain right there where the road is. And all the Abenamo people are up there, and they're just shooting their arrows down at us. And he told me I'm holding him, and he kept saying, watch out for the black thing, watch out for the black thing, because the arrows, when they go up, they'll come up, and you can see it. But then when they flip over and come down, all you see is a black thing. You can't see anything else, any other part of the arrow, just a black head of it. So he kept saying, watch out for the black thing. And when he sees something come close, he just sort of, and I'd be holding on to him and moving me out of the way and all over. Anyhow, it was an experience of a lifetime, and I wouldn't want to go back to it. <clears throat> We've had some fights since then, but nothing like that. But anyhow, long story short, through that, people's hearts were, were open. We had over 60 people get hurt, and three of them almost died. One guy got an arrow right in, right in the center of his chest, and the arrow was that long it went all the way in him. <clears throat> he should have died, but he didn't. The Lord intervened and had mercy on him. And so at the end of our youth camp, everyone's there. All of the villages around us are there. Man, their eyes are open. They saw, they saw the Lord be merciful. Probably 100 people should have been dead in that fight. No one got killed. No one died. And so we had all of our young guys from our village. They got shot in the legs and hands, and they're coming in. We're shooting them up with penicillin, and then they go into the, camp, the tent to hear the preaching. And we're going there, and we saw the Lord start working and moving. And one guy out of that entire camp, at the very last night of the camp, his name was Siloa, he got convicted. He was under conviction. And he told us after, he came with his wife and his two kids, and he said, I only came for girls. I just came to find some more girls to sleep with. That's the way he is, just living a wicked wicked life. He was a druggie and a, it was it's as bad as you can think it worse. Last night, one phrase that the preacher said in that last service got a hold of his heart. Sunday he came to our services and he held my hand and he never usually comes. So he, when I saw him, I was pretty amazed. And he held my hand and said, Tim, after the service today, I want to talk to you. After the service, went back to our house and he, he trusted the Lord as his Savior in our house. And in Papua New Guinea, we, we have a philosophy, sort of. It's a saying. We say, you me wait and I'm looking. Let's wait and see. Because in Papua New Guinea, because of the animistic culture, anyone is just, everyone's trying to add a god onto their shelf of gods just to cover their bases. So I just said, we'll wait and see. Man, we didn't have to wait long. Within a week, the guy was just total transformation. That same day, he went back to his house and to his village and called everyone together because he's the firstborn son of his father. He has the authority to call his whole entire family together, sat him all down, and went down the line, apologized to them, confessed his sin to them, asked them for forgiveness, said, I've trusted Christ in my Savior. Things are different now. And he, he says, I remember this. He told me this later. He said, and his wife told me too. He said, I remember pointing my finger at my wife after Evan had left and me and my wife alone. He said, I'll never fall. By God's grace, I'm not going to do what all these other Christians are doing and get up and go good for a while and then fall. I won't do that. I'm going to depend on God, and I'm going to stay as close to Christ as I can, and I'm going to go on until the day I die. Well, he's, by God's grace, kept that promise to this day. He got set, baptized, called to preach, 
He's preaching in our church now. In fact, he is not the pastor of the church, but he's the preacher of the church because the church doesn't have a pastor right now. But the church has grown, gotten established. We started out with 15. Now we have about 60 to 90 adults, Sunday school, Sunday morning services. We have about 120 people who come to our Thursday night fellowships now. We have them at our house. But that's those 60 to 90 people are just adults. We have about 50 to 60 kids who come on every Sunday school and every main service. And these are people <coughs> who were in our village who were either backslidden or lost. We didn't do anything. Yes, we went out there, we preached them, we, we witnessed to them and whatnot. But man, when they started seeing their own people get saved and then coming back and witnessing to them, everything changed. God started doing a work there in a special way. 2017 was a real banner year for us. We saw some people get saved who we never thought. Like, we put them on the list of if God can't do something, it would be save those people. And they got saved. And man, they changed one of them. He, he grew drug gardens because they live off the food they grow in their gardens. And so his wife would plant all the food gardens and he would plant all the drug gardens. And he still was uncle, blood uncle. He comes to our revival services in May of 2017, sat under six, basically a whole weekend of messages, seven messages. A man Sunday after the morning service, the final service there, he was ready and he got saved. He's been baptized. He's faithful to the Lord to this day. We're in the New Guinea, and we baptized 22 people, 21 people, and all 21 of those people are in the church faithful to the Lord to this day. I'm excited about that, man. That's fruit to your account, and I hope you're excited about that too. That's exciting to see people get saved and transformed. And I know nowadays we have in our, our, our independent Baptist circles this philosophy, and I think it's garbage, where when people get saved, we say, well, give them some time, give them six months to five years, and Hopefully they'll change, and I understand people grow at different paces. I understand that. Some people grow slowly, some people grow quickly. But man, I love seeing it when someone gets saved and there's an automatic transformation that takes place in their life. Man, that's the Spirit of God working in them. So I was really excited. We got pumped up about that. We're excited about that. We have five leaders in the church. We have four preachers. Those four preachers are still there now, faithful to the church. They're helping out the church under Silua and these five older people in the church, these men who are looking after the church. The church has grown. <coughs> They've been, they started a missions program. Amen. They've helped churches. We can't even get there by, by, by plane or by cars. Just no way to get there. But the people walked there. We've helped them. We've sent money to help them build churches in those areas there. Amen. Sent Bibles to them. It's exciting to see the church doing it. And I believe in the indigenous church principle. Amen. And man, you know, we had a guy text us. This is exciting just to see how the Lord works. I just wanted to share this with you. This is so good to see how God works. I had a guy text me Friday, last week Friday, and he said, Tim, we want to thank you so much and all these churches that sent you and your family over here. We're so thankful that when you got over here, you just let us do the work. And we made mistakes, and you still let us keep doing it. And, man, we now you're not here. No missionaries on the station right now because Brother Dave's gone to Canada. He's sick still. No missionaries here, and he texted, and he said, we're just doing what we've always done. Nothing new here. We just did what we taught to do, and we're just doing it, man. That's no big deal. We don't need a missionary. God's working through our preacher, and God's blessing, and the church is still growing, and we're still going to outreach. And they, they stopped the fasting and prayer time, and I told them this Sunday, we're starting it back up again this Friday. So again, they realize there's power in prayer. They realize there's power in fasting, and they're doing it. Man, it's exciting to see them going out every week, every week on witnessing, on outreach there. And in Papua New Guinea, you don't go door to door. The house would probably fall if you knocked on their doors. <clears throat> but we go on in the markets. We go into the villages. When they see us coming, they all sit down. You go to Lay. No lie, this happened in Lay. Lay City, 500,000 people in Lay City. We went and preached in a market in Lay. 
and at every market in Lay, it's like the hub for all the buses. So all these 25 passenger buses are basically taxis. They're called PMVs. <clears throat> They'll come. They're like 50 to 75 of them on each side of the road. It's just a madhouse of noise. And they come. They're dropping people off, picking people up. We go and we start preaching on this marketplace. <clears throat> and all these bus drivers are pulling up, dropping off people. And then they're looking over and they're seeing us. And they all turned off their cars. And they're leaning out their windows and they're listening. We get done preaching and they start motioning. They're probably 75 yards away from us. And they start motioning us, coming on. They see us passing out tracks. Said, give us some tracks, man. We gave them some tracks and said, give us some more. When our next group of passengers hop on, we'll give them out to them. These are lost people. On drugs, probably. High as a kite, but happy to give out the gospel for us. Man, how can you beat that? You cannot beat that. So praise the Lord. God's good. We're excited about that. We're looking forward to getting back in March or June of next year, just as the Lord works it out there and finishing establishing the church, completely turn it over and go out from there. Man, we're pumped. Looking forward to it. Appreciate your prayers. Thank you so much. We know you pray for us. We do. We know you pray for us, and that's so big. That's such an encouragement. So thank you so much. If you have any more questions, we do have some prayer cards, some new prayer cards in our pew there. If you'd like one, please come by. It's our updated information, some new pictures and stuff. <coughs> and if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalms chapter 27. So good to see you all here tonight. I'm so excited to see all these young people in this church on a Wednesday night. I mean, y'all must be sick in the head or something. <coughs> of all the things you can do when you're here in church, what's wrong with y'all? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glad to see you. What a blessing. Psalms chapter 27. We're going to read one verse. If you would, if you're able to, please stand with me in respect to God's word. <coughs> Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. One verse here. Verse 4. David speaking. He's making a prayer to the Lord. And he says here in verse 4, Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Let's pray and then we'll look into the meat of the Word of God. Father in heaven, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we're asking you to move me out of the way. God, I pray that the Spirit of God would blow in here would move in here, that your presence would be felt and seen here tonight. I pray that this wouldn't be just another Wednesday night service, but that this would be a service where lives are changed by the power of your word. It's not the power of a preacher, but it's the power of the word of God. And Lord, we pray that it would go forth as a fire and burn in the hearts of each and everyone here tonight. I pray that I know people are tired, I know people are thinking about their work day tomorrow and the things that they're going to have to do and places they're going to have to go and people they're going to have to see. And Lord, I pray those are just distractions of Satan to keep us and keep our minds off the Word of God. I pray that you'd remove those distractions even now. I pray that you'd bind the strong man Satan, take away his influence from the hearts and minds and lives of us here tonight. Bless and visit this place in a special way. I pray that some soul would be called to the ministry. I pray that someone would be saved here tonight. I know it's a Wednesday night, but that doesn't matter. Every day is a soul-winning day for you. And Lord, you're always looking for that soul who is ready to hear and receive the gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd bless here tonight. Give me complete unction and liberty. Give me the unction to function as you would have me do. And I pray that you'd guide my lips and my thoughts and my tongue and my words and my actions, that it would all be honoring and glorifying to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
<clears throat> excuse me, I'm fighting a, I don't know what it is, allergies or something, I don't know. It's attacked me, attacked my head, so if I cough here, just forgive me. <clears throat> you know, I love sports. And I'm not, I'm a loser, I admit it. I'm not much of a team follower. I like following individual people. And I like, because the reason is I like skill. Basketball is one of my favorite games. And of course, I love LeBron James. I, I followed him in high school. Then when he went to the Cavaliers. And then when he went to Miami, he went back to the Cavaliers. What a loser, you know. He's jumping around anyhow. I won't get onto that. But I love his skill. I love people's skill. You like these, you know, I don't watch any kind of football or basketball. Or we don't even have a TV. It doesn't even matter, though. I'm not going to soak my mind in that filth and garbage anyhow. But you have all these football stars, and Alabama's number one, and this guy beat this team, and that team beat that team, and UFC, and all these sports, and all these people are really good at what they're doing, and I like that. I like someone who really excels at what they're doing. But I like someone who has a passion for what they're doing here. But there's one sport that I just can't stand, and that's golf. I hope none of y'all here like golf. Oh, man. <coughs> golf is the stupidest game. I've never, I mean, can you imagine spending millions to hold a, a piece of iron and hit a little? I don't get it. Anyhow, what I do like, though, is I like Tiger Woods. He's, he's, without an argument, the greatest golfer in the world. And it's an interesting story. David here is saying one thing of I desired of the Lord. Tiger Woods at the end of last year's golf season, not this year's golf season, last year's golf season, he was doing very, very poor. He had back problems. He went to a doctor, got an MRI. The doctor said, man, we're going to have some serious problems here with your spine and some of the, some of the vertebrae that are, are, are close to it. We're going to have to fuse them together and do some type of a spinal surgery as well. It's not looking good for you. In fact, the doctors told him, you'll probably never golf again, okay? There's no way you're getting out of that golf course and competing professionally anymore. You'll never even probably be able to play it as a luxury, as a pastime. So Tiger Woods, he did the surgery, but after the surgery, he had a mindset. He said, I'm not only going to compete professionally. I'm going to get a win in professional sports. And so he changed his diet. He changed his clothes. He changed his workout schedule. He changed the way he worked out. He changed his eating habits. He changed his golf clubs. He changed everything. And he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked. He started the start of this last year's golf season one, ranked in the world as 1,199. Now he's way back there. But he buckled down, and he started golfing like he never golfed before. I don't know if you'll keep up with golf. I don't, but I just read this in a paper recently, and I thought I'd mention this to you. At the end of this golf season... He went into the last round of the golf season, ranked number 22 in the world. At that last tournament, he got the win. He was always looking, never gotten one the whole season. He got one in the last golf tournament. And then on the Ryder Cup, which is the follow-up to the end of the golf tournament, he placed second, and that after, a, after an over, overtime, basically, a, 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 I don't know what they call it in golf, and I don't really care anyhow, he finished 18 holes and had to play a couple more holes in competition with another guy, finished second. And at the end of this last year's golf season, he ended, the, ended his world rankings from 1,199 last year to number two in the world. True story. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, it's interesting here in this passage. We're going to hold that thought and go into this passage here, and I'll be back to that. <clears throat> we're going to break up this verse into three sections here. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. We're going to break that sentence up into three sections here. And this phrase, one thing, 
It's seen three times in the Bible. It's seen here in Psalm chapter 27. It's seen in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, where Jesus is talking to Martha, and he says, one thing thou lackest. Well, she wasn't fellowshipping with the Lord, shame on her, and yet we like to say shame on her, but frankly, that's our problem. Everything boils down to fellowship. If you're not fellowshipping with Christ, you don't have a testimony. If you're not fellowshipping with Christ, you have no power. If you're not fellowshipping with Christ, no matter what you do in the ministry, you're not going to bear fruit that remains. Fellowship is above everything important. Then we go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and here we have Paul, verse 13. Sorry, Paul is speaking, and he says, One thing I desire, and that was to be like Christ. Three times here we see this phrase, one thing. <clears throat> we're going to look at three principles that we need to apply to our lives from this passage here. Number one, David had a single mind. A single mind. He said, one thing have I desired. I only desire one thing, Lord. And if it were, if I were to go around this room and ask each and every one of you, what are the things that you desire? Unfortunately, you and I as Christians would probably have a list that ran a mile high. I want this. I want that. I want to get this. I want to get that. New car, new gun, new boat, new this, new that, new the other. And it's all these material things that are going to burn up one day. And David said, I don't want any of those things. I'm not worried about those earthly things. They're just earthly possessions. I don't have my eyes on earthly things. I have my eyes on heaven. And so I want Jesus Christ. And that's all I want. Man, if we had that passion, we need to have a single mind. The sports players like Tiger Woods changed their entire lives in order to get one thing, a trophy, that's going to one day burn up. If they can give their lives to something that's material and that's not going to last, why can't we give more for the work of God into something and laying up our treads in heaven something that's going to last for all eternity? Yeah. One thing, single mind. Do you have a single mind tonight? One thing, David said. Nothing else matters. You know, it's interesting. When you look in Matthew chapter 6, very familiar passage here. Lord, in verse 19, it started out, he's saying, Lay not for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. And then here's the key passage, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your help me out here. Heart be also. Look, whatever you put your eyes on, that's where your heart's going to be. Whatever you're longing for, that's where your heart's going to be. And many times these Christians say, I want to serve God. I want to please God. I want to do this. I want to do that. And yet we find no time for God. And what we're showing is that our heart is where our treasure is. And our treasure is on the things of this world. And not on things on the, in heaven. We need to have a single mind. Tiger Woods gave his life, changed everything, and got what he was aiming for. He got a corruptible crown. But we're not running in the same kind of race as Tiger Woods. Our crown is incorruptible. And if we have a single mind, we can get that crown. Do you have a single mind tonight? So many distractions. Distractions are dangerous. So many distractions through the work of God. Me and Pastor were talking about that. So many distractions. Distractions are dangerous. And that's why Paul in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 said, Looking unto Jesus. Nothing else matters. Get your eyes off the other things. Look unto Jesus Christ. Distractions will derail you. And that's why it's so important for us to fellowship with Jesus Christ and keep our eyes and our mind and our heart on Him. Amen. Nothing else matters. You know, I'm a young guy. Guys, I'm young. I'm only 28. <laughs> and I look back in my short life, 
When I look at the things I used to idolize, I, I, I told you I loved basketball. I really, really, really loved basketball. I had a basketball hoop outside. I'd pray three to four hours of basketball, three to four times a week at our gym and our school. And the, the stupid thing was I wasn't even good at it. I don't know why I wasted my time on it anyway. Then when I'd come for home from the gym, I'd play in the yard basketball. And when I came in and got a shower, I had put up this, I had bought this very expensive metal little hoop rim basketball thing. And I screwed it up into the studs in my wall in my room. And I would shoot that thing for hours inside at night. I gave my life for that. I spent my money for it. I spent my time on it. I bought special basketball shoes. All these things, man, wasted my money. You know what? Those shoes. They're, just, they're gone, man. They're totally destroyed and gone. They're in the trash and the dumps. They're gone. All that rims and basketball equipment that I bought, it's gone. You know what I got from it? I got two bad knees, and that's it. I'm not lying. Why, and I'll tell you this. Let me, I'll just give you a personal testimony. When I was 17, I was, my mind was so focused on basketball, and I was, I, I was sort of, I didn't, I knew I wasn't good enough to be, I was not good at all at basketball, so I was just, psh, basketball's out, but I really loved it. And so I was working out and running every day. You know how you, us young guys are, we want to be tough and rough, and, you know, and all that foolishness. And so I was running, I bought this Navy SEAL workout book, and I'm going through all this stuff, and I have this great vision of joining the special forces. I think we've all been there, haven't we, guys? Be honest, we've all been there. Want to do that? I'm running six miles a day, I'm doing all these push-ups and sit-ups and all this stupid stuff here. And I'm going, going, and I finally started started going and I'd come home and I'd come home like that and my knees started hurting really really bad and I'd get done with a run at the end of the day and I'd have to go home it got to the place where I'd go home and I'd lie in my bed and I'd moan and cry I was in such pain I went to a specialist finally after six months I could barely walk it got to both of my knees I was wearing braces on both of my knees when I walked even when I just picked my legs up it hurt and I'd be, oh! so I was sort of walking like this I'm 17 man walking like a 700-year-old, just sort of, you know, walking like that. It was terrible. I felt so embarrassed, and I'm wearing these big castings around my knees, and so, I'm, you know, I'm wearing my dress pants, and I'm just, all swollen up like I got fat legs and stuff. It was embarrassing joining the church, so I said, I'm sick of this. I'm going to a specialist. I'm going to find out what's wrong. I went to a specialist. He took x-rays of both knees, took x-rays of my hips, of the bottom parts of my legs. He measured them, and when it all got done and said, he sat down with me, and he said, Tim, there's nothing wrong with you at all. You've got some of the best knees that I've ever seen. I said, dog, I can't even barely walk on them, man. He said, I don't know what to tell you. I'll tell you, that was the Lord. <coughs> I sat down with my dad when I got home. It was a very serious conversation for a 17-year-old. I said, dad, my knees are shot. The doctor says there's nothing wrong with them, but I can't even run anymore. And my dad said, do you think God's trying to tell you something? I said, I reckon so. He said, what's he trying to tell you? He said, man, I don't know, but... You know what? And I prayed with my dad right then and there. I said, Dad, let's pray, and whatever God wants me to do, I'll do it. And I surrendered my life to the Lord sitting in there with my dad. Three months later, God called me to preach. I still wasn't able to walk. Three years after that, I went on a mission trip to Papua New Guinea, still hobbling around, working, got off time off work, went to Papua New Guinea. And when I set foot in New Guinea, no pain no problems. One Sunday afternoon, we walked 10 hours. I didn't have a problem in the world. Came back home, and I'm saying, oh, Lord, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm not even going to be able to get out of bed. 
get up the next morning, fine, no problems, it's gone. That was the Lord. That's the Lord saying, you're in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing. God has a plan for our lives. And you know what was the problem? I didn't have a single mind. I was looking at all these other things on this earth that don't amount to nothing. If you don't get anything else out of this tonight, young people, get this. All these things on this earth are going to vanish. They are material. Don't give your life for them. Have a single mind like David and say, look, I don't care what God's called me to do. All I want is to be in the presence of God. Have a single mind. Give your life to God. You'll never regret it. You just heard tonight how many blessings pastor gave us tonight. That is miracle after miracle after miracle because some people in here have a single mind to serve the living God and to be in the presence of God every day of their life. But you know what? They're going to die one day. Who's going to take their place? We had a missionary in Cameroon just die. Who's going to take his place? I just got an email from a missionary in Papua New Guinea. He's coming off the field. Who's going to take his place? There's a missionary, Dave Crow, is in Canada today. He's so sick and he's getting sicker and he just texted me this morning and said, I'm getting worse and worse and worse. I don't know what God's doing, but I can't do this anymore. Who's going to take his place? There's 900 pastors that are looking for churches on a church website, Independent Baptist website. And I'm sitting there shaking my head going, I've been in thousands, not thousands, I've been in hundreds of churches that don't have a pastor. They're looking for a pastor. Who's going to take their places? In the last three months, I've had three pastors call me up. Tim, do you know anyone, a young couple, looking for a church? I've got health issues. I'm too old and I'm tired. Solid, independent Baptist churches. No one to take their places. One of them has been looking for two years. That's, that's normal. Most churches look for five years for pastors. Who's going to be the next generation to stand up and say, I'm going to have a single mind. I'm going to be in the presence of God every day of my life. I'm going to surrender my life to God. And I'm going to do anything God wants me to do. Do we have a single mind? Get our eyes off the junk of this world and the garbage of this world. Let's get our eyes on Jesus Christ. Get Jesus Christ's vision for the things of God. One thing, single mind. Number two, have I desired of the Lord? David not only had a single mind, but number two, he says, have I desired of the Lord? He made an impossible request. Now, as we look at the life of David here, David was a mighty man of God. He was a mighty man of value. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a prophet. He was a poet. He was a mighty man of God. He was the greatest king that Israel had ever known. But David wasn't a priest. And only the priest can go into the holy place. Think of Asa, King Asa, when he tried to go into the holy place and God smote him with leprosy from head to toe because he was intruding in a place that he was not allowed to intrude in. Because in the, in the law, when the law was given, the priest was the only one who was allowed to go into the holy place. The king and the prophet were not allowed to. But you know what I like about David? He realized, I can't go into that place, but I want it. I still want to go into it. He had an impossible request he made to the Lord. He said, God, I understand that I'm not allowed to be in your presence. I understand that I'm not allowed to be in that holy place. But God, I want it. I want it all the days of my life. I want your presence. I don't want anything else. Give me your presence, God. He made an impossible request. You know how God takes nobodies and makes somebodies out of them? 
because they make an impossible request to God. They realize, man, I'm worthless. I'm a good for nothing. I'm a sinner. I have no talents. I have no abilities. I have nothing that I can offer God for the work of the Lord. But God, I'm just begging you, use me. Use me. And God takes someone who makes that impossible request. Use a sinner, a wicked, good-for-nothing, hell-deserving sinner for God's work. Yes, God loves that request. And God hears that request. And when you make that impossible request, God hears and answers. You know, some people here, they've been praying for years and years and years for a family member who's lost. Why don't you make an impossible request to God tonight? God, no matter the cost. We need to make some impossible requests. There's some people whose marriages are messed up. Some people who aren't where they are spiritually, should be spiritually. You need to make an impossible request to God and say, God, no matter what the cost, get me there. Lastly, we see not only a single mind and an impossible request, but the last part of this sentence says, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David not only had a single mind, he didn't only make an impossible request, but he made a determined decision. In verse 8 here, the Bible says, When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. David made a decision. God, I need your presence. God, I want your presence. God, I think of Moses in Exodus chapter 33 when he said, God said, I'll send an angel before you to take you into the promised land, but I'm not going up with you because you people are stiff-necked and hard-hearted, and I'm not going to go with you. And Moses said, God, if your presence going up with us, then don't let us go up. And some of us need to be asking the same thing and making that same determined decision. God, I want your presence and yours alone. An angel is not enough. Only your presence will do. Then there's some people tonight here, I believe, I need to make the determined decision and say, God, no matter what it takes, no matter what the cost, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. No matter the cost. That missionary in Cameroon paid for the service of God's work with his life. He counted the cost. And when you look at the blood of Jesus Christ as it runs down the cross and you see what Christ did for you, Everything that you're thinking of, of giving up, pales in comparison. The price is already paid. All God's looking for is a vessel in the honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. Someone who will say like Isaiah, here am I, send me. We have three things here. We have a single mind, we have an impossible request, and then we have a determined decision. Man, if someone would make that tonight. If someone would make that decision, I'd say, God, I'm all in. It's either you or nothing. It's either your presence or nothing. God will use you in a mighty way. There's nothing God can't do. And nothing God can't do with you if you're surrendered to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your time that you've given us here tonight. Before that happened, like last year. Oh, Lord. Judges chapter number 8 this morning. Thank you so much for letting me come and um, it's, it's been my heart for so long, I, I guess ever since I got saved, and especially since the Lord called me to preach uh, a little over 16 years ago when the Lord called me to preach to, to try to help young people. Um, 
and uh, there's a lot of ministries that are geared towards young people, but they're not really biblical. Um, they're, they're not the right kind of ministry. They're not pointing people in the right direction necessarily. And that troubles me because uh, we, we need more preaching with a burden for young people. Um, that, that old saying, they're the church of tomorrow, and we know that that's not, that that, we know the meaning behind that as far as leadership goes. But if you don't make the church of tomorrow the church of today, there will be no church of tomorrow. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm, I'm thankful that the Lord has given us a ministry that tries to help young people Amen. and uh, point them in the right direction, point them in the old paths, Amen. and uh, let, God, uh, let God help them to, uh, to be molded the way He wants them to be. Judges Amen. chapter 8, and uh, let me have you stand for just a minute, and then we'll read some verses. We, we're, uh, if, if you've read anything about this man Gideon that we're going to read about, we understand he's taken 300 men and uh, by God's power he's defeated uh, 120,000 men of Midian. They go and they chase down another 15,000 that fled. And uh, so they caught those 15,000, they've killed them. So at this point, if I understand correctly, they have uh, been outnumbered 135,000 to 300. They have caught and whooped every one of these guys. Uh, now the only ones that remain are two kings of Midian. I want you to look in verse number 18 of chapter number 8. Notice what the Bible says. Then said he, talking about Gideon, Then said he unto Zeba and Zalmona, What manner of men were they whom you slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. I sense the arrogance in their voice. And he said, They were my brethren, even the sons of my mother, as the Lord liveth, if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, Up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your goodness. Lord, we want to thank you for your mercy and your grace, the privilege of prayer this morning, the good fellowship I had with you coming down the road. Lord, you know our heart. Lord, you know my burden, and Lord, you know exactly what we need in this meeting. Thank you for the good report on last evening, and thank you for Brother Chad and for his stand. Lord, I thank you for uh, Brother Young and the church here, and Lord, what you have done in the past, and the potential of what you're going to do in the future. And Lord, I pray that this meeting, Lord, not just this week of meeting, but Lord, even this morning would be life-changing for some young person in here. Lord, I pray that we get a hold of this, and just as, uh, just as the pastor has made mention in the past, help us to make commitments to you and let you have your way in our life. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We'll give you the glory for all that you do. Help us, please, in this time. And Lord, we'll be careful to keep the crowns on your head and cast ours at your feet. And for what you do, we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. I'm interested in that phrase in verse number 20 where it says, But the youth drew not his sword. I want to preach for a little while on this thought. The danger of not drawing your sword. The danger of not drawing your sword. Notice this now. Uh, Gideon was commanded from the very beginning of this story to destroy all. You might say, well, he didn't have to kill 
all of them, and that's what's wrong with us. God has given us a battle. He's given us a fight. And somehow we've reasoned, we've justified the fact that we don't deal with all of the sin in our life, just a little bit of sin. And there'll be little areas of our life that we'll leave undone. But God told Gideon to destroy all of the enemy. We, uh, we, it's funny how we give God our soul and our eternal destination we place in His hands, but we won't give Him our life. And it was a happy day when God let me not just give Him my soul, but a little while after that, I gave God my life and I, and I allowed Him to begin to make the decisions that needed to be made. God told Gideon, you smite the Midianites as one man. That means you can't just destroy one and God be satisfied. You can't just destroy half and God be satisfied. They couldn't just destroy all but these two and God be satisfied. God said, you smite them as one man. And when you kill one man, you've killed all of that man. And God says, I want you to destroy all of the Midianites. Now God wanted them to get rid of all of them. Get, they get down to the end of this fight. These two men are standing before Gideon. And Jether is here. And Gideon is placed in his hand the ability and the opportunity to finish the job. He wanted Jether to cut these two men out of their life and forever finish off the Midianites. That's what he wanted him to do. Now I wonder what it is that we need to cut off in our life. It uh, Just by way of introduction, it may be uh, it may be some fake friends that we have. There may be somebody that is influencing you to do wrong. It could be family. It could be flesh. It could be fame. It could be filth. It could be peer pressure. It could be playing games. No doubt there may be somebody in here who has a problem with pornography. There may be somebody in here who you've got burdens, unnecessary burdens, and you need to get those things cut out of your life. And then there may be somebody in here, you've got barriers. You're limiting yourself in what God can do with your life. Uh, whatever it is, there's something that every one of us can cut out of our life so that we can get closer to God. May it be said of us, as the songwriter said, nothing between my soul and the Savior. I want you to notice three things by way of introduction about Jethro. Notice first of all, the decision of the youth. The Bible says that he drew not his sword. Understand now, it was his decision. Nobody's making him keep his sword in the sheath. Nobody's making him pull it out. It was his decision. If he wanted to, he would have pulled it out. His decision was a personal decision. Nobody made him do it. Your decision to pull out your sword or to serve God or to live for God, it's your decision. Nobody makes you do that. It's a personal decision. It's a prophetic decision. It tells a lot about what your future is. Listen to me now, decisions today determine destiny tomorrow. Your decisions today determine your destination concerning tomorrow. It's a prophetic decision. It's a personal decision. But then it's a private decision. Let me say this. I'm preaching to young people. Some of you in here, uh, some of you in here today, maybe you don't want to be here, but you're here because you have to be. So there may be some young man in here. Tonight your parents are going to get you together and they're going to say get dressed for church and you're going to slip on a tie. You don't want to put a tie on, but you do it because you have to. You 
girls got up this morning and your parents said get ready for church and it wasn't even a question for you to put on a skirt or a dress and to be modest and you did it because you had to but in your heart you don't want to do it. It's a private decision. Listen, sometimes you can do it all on the outside but if it's not right in your heart, listen, you still have not pulled your sword out. His decision, the decision of the youth. And then notice this, the disobedience of the youth. And he said unto Jether, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword. His disobedience, first of all, is to his parents. I don't have to quote any verses on that. We know that that's unbiblical for you to disobey your parents. It's, it's disobedience towards his parents. Then it's disobedience towards his pastor. Gideon is the man of God. If you will, in picture, in type, this is his very pastor telling him what to do. His disobedience to his pastor and his disobedience to his parents. But then he's disobedient to the precepts. Listen, when you disobey your parents and you disobey your pastor, automatically you've disobeyed the Word of God. And that's what Jethro did. We see his disobedience. We see his decision. And then we see his dreadfulness. Notice this. The Bible says, because for he feared because he was yet a youth. He feared. I'm interested in that in that phrase. He feared because he was a youth. Now I want you to notice some things that kept Jether from drawing out his sword. And what are these things that kept him from drawing out his sword? And it may be that some things that kept him from drawing out his sword may be what's keeping you from drawing out your sword. Uh, it, could it be possible that all these years ago there were some similarities between Jether not drawing out his sword and some teenager, some girl, some boy that's not willing to draw out their sword right now? I want to give you four things about Jether not drawing out his sword and I'm going to be done. First of all, could it be that Jether had borderline friends? Now, when we read the life of Gideon, Gideon, the story of Gideon and Jether plays out along the border of Succoth and Penuel. And that's between between God's people and the Ammonites and the Midianites. Maybe Jethro was friends with them. Maybe these were his best friend's parents. Maybe he felt like he owed them some sort of allegiance. Uh, Maybe he was more loyal to his friend's parents, his borderline friends, his carnal friends, his not right with God friends. Maybe he was more loyal to them than he was his own mom and daddy. Uh, These were the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Moabites. Midianites means strife. I mean, these are the enemies of God. But could it be that because he grew up on the border that he was friends with, 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 with these people who were literally the enemies of God? Let me ask you a question. What kind of friends do you have? Are your friends discouraging or encouraging you to serve God? What kind of people is it that you're surrounding yourself with? Uh, Do they push you to God or do they push you to the world, to the flesh, to carnality? You say, why does it matter about my friends? Well, it matters. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, verse 33. The Bible says, evil communications corrupt good manners. Somebody said, it's not really that important. Well, one preacher said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Your friends are indicative of the path that you're on. Who you are today, whoever your friends are, that's who you're going to turn out to be. Whoever it is that you surround yourself with. That might be somebody in here, you've got friends 
on the board and you say, well, ain't nobody telling me what to do. Ain't nobody controlling my life. You're right. Uh, you, you say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live how I want to live. That's an inaccurate statement. You don't do what you want to do. Most of the time we do what our friends want us to do. As a teenager feeling the pressure and, and, and not knowing what to do, you're at places in your life you've never been. And oftentimes you don't do what you want to do. You do what everybody else is doing. And so we see it could be that he had borderline friends. What kind of friends maybe that he had? What are borderline friends? Well, some borderline friends are intimidating. Listen, they make fun of God. They make fun of you for memorizing Scripture, for going to church, for carrying gospel tracts, for reading your Bible, for being here on a Friday morning. Those are friends of intimidation who try to keep you from serving God by just simply making fun of you, by trying to intimidate you. Then there are borderline friends that are intimate. Listen, I've heard this before, heard this all my life, and I've had, I've heard this trick of the devil that's been put on young people, and that is this. If you love me, if you, if you're my friend, if we're going to be buddies, listen, that ain't a friend that loves you. That, that is not the kind of friend you need. That is a borderline friend who is using a wicked influence to try to keep you from serving God. Borderline friends can be intimidating. They can be intimate friends. And then they can be ignorant. Listen, oftentimes they may be talking about things that they don't even realize how they're hurting you. The Bible says in Proverbs 20 and verse 13, He that walketh with wise men should be wise, but the companion of fools. I've always thought that was interesting. He didn't say the fools. Well, we know what's going to happen to the fool. We know what category God puts the fool in. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. We know what the Bible says about fools, but the Bible says the companion of fools. You may not be the fool. But are you the companion of a fool? I'm not really doing wrong, preacher. Yeah, but are you the companion of somebody that's doing wrong? Borderline friends are intimidating. There are intimate friends. There are ignorant friends. So there's the borderline friends. Could it be that somebody in here, you made a friendship, an allegiance, an association with somebody who is living on the border and it's influencing you to do wrong things. Maybe that's why Jethro couldn't get his sword out. Because he had more allegiance to his friends and his parents, friends' parents than he did his own daddy. Notice this, not just borderline friends, but we see a behavior of foolishness. Maybe he, maybe he figured, I've got better things to do than to help daddy in the battle. I've got better things to do than to pull out my sword. Maybe, maybe let's just let somebody else do it. I mean, I'm busy, you know. I got, I got ball practice and, and, and then we're going to go shopping and, and then we're going to go hang out and then we're going, we're going to get on our, we're going to get on our face space and, and chat snap and all that junk and we're going to make videos and we're going to do, but I ain't really got time to draw out my sword right now. I got too many things to do. Oh, we're, we're so busy doing everything we want to do that we're not busy doing everything that God wants us to do. It could be a behavior of foolishness. We're, this is the most selfish generation we've ever lived in. You pick up any young lady, and I hope to God none of you girls in here has got phones, but most young ladies and even young boys, you pick up if they've got a phone, and I don't know why, why parents go brain dead at about when their kids get 12 and 13 and 15 and 16 and start giving them cell phones. I understand there are some good reasons. Brother David, I didn't have no cell phone when I was 16. I wrecked the truck and took off walking towards the house. And it just so happened my mama drove by. And she kept on driving because she thought I'd run out of gas. She came back and got me later. 
I didn't have no cell phone. But we think, oh no, the world's going to end if they're not like everybody else. And if they don't have a smartphone, if they don't have an iPhone, if they ain't got a Samsung uh, Galaxy Pluto or whatever them things are called, if they ain't got one of them, boy, they're going to be behind everybody and they're going to be labeled and they're going to be weirdos and they're going to be Fruit Loops. And so parents get phones and you get these phones from these kids. You know what most, they got cameras on them. Everyone has got cameras. And you know what most of them got pictures of? Their self. Boy, ain't that real spiritual. You ever thought about God saying not putting any image? Well, the, the idol is, the statue is an idol. But what about images that we put in front of the Lord? We, we, we take more pictures of ourselves. We're so busy looking at pictures of ourselves, looking at an image than we are looking at God's Word. You tell me how that fits in in Exodus chapter 20. A behavior of foolishness. Foolish in action. He didn't obey. His action was foolish. Let me ask you something. Is your action foolish? Is your action, is it foolish? Or are you doing the right thing? He, he was foolish in his action. But then notice this. It was not just a foolish action. It was foolish in appearance. Not only was it foolish for him to do it, but everybody else saw it too. It, it gave a testimony of what Jethro really was. Yes, sir. Notice what the Bible says in verse 21. Then uh, Zeba and Zalmona said, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his. They didn't want that young man to kill them. They did, they, everybody saw that. Everybody heard that conversation. Listen, you're not only foolish in your action, but in your appearance. Everyone else can see it. Even the, even the world can see when you're choosing foolishness over God. Zebra Zalmona saw it right away. So we see he couldn't draw out his sword because of a behavior of foolishness. Maybe he couldn't draw it out because of borderline friends. It could be that he didn't draw it out because of his bitter feelings. You know, I think about this man Gideon and how God used him in such a great way. And Gideon had to have faith in God. And he had to trust God. And he had to let, let God direct his life. I mean, you talk about faith. I mean, here he's got all these men. He's already outnumbered. He's already wondering how we're going to get this done. God, we're going to have to have faith. And next thing you know, God has whittled it down to 300 men. 135,000 to 300. They make good odds. I'm homeschooled. I was, I was pretty decent at math. I know that ain't good odds. 135,000 is greater than 300. That little, that little thing right there, yeah, it's pointed towards 135,000. Bad trouble for Gideon. Gideon had faith in God and he trusted God and he took God at His word and he executed the plan that God had given. And after all of that, here's, here's Jether with an opportunity to do something. And maybe Jethro looked and he said, you know, Daddy, you didn't really have time for me last week. Maybe he was bitter at Gideon for not spending enough time with him. Maybe he was glad that these men had killed his brethren. Maybe he was glad that some of them were fallen. There might be somebody here who says, you know, I'm kind of glad Sister So-and-So's gone. I got tired of hearing her testify all the time. She always acts like she's more spiritual than everybody else. You know, he's always there. He gets on my nerves because he's always helping the preacher do something. He's always in the middle. He's always trying to help run. He's always trying to do something. He just wants a little recognition. He just wants somebody to pat him on the back. He's just Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Maybe you enjoyed seeing them fall. Maybe that's what was wrong with Jethro. Maybe that's why he didn't draw his sword. Maybe he he was bitter. Bitter at his daddy. Bitter, Bitter at his preacher. Bitter at his parents. Notice this. There are some in here. Listen, there's some of you in here I know for a fact. Your family's been faithful. 
You don't know what it means to walk to the refrigerator and open it up and see alcohol and booze. You've never, you've never smelled stale cigarettes on your mom and daddy's breath. You've never walked up on them having to spit out a chew of tobacco. You don't, you ain't never seen empty syringes and needles laying around your house. You don't know what it is to have pill bottles laying all in the medicine cabinet from where they're staying doped up all the time. God is being good to you. And you're not watching filthy movies. You don't have to listen to bad music. You don't have to be in a house full of wickedness and de- uh, just a bunch of demons spiritual influence I mean you don't know what none of that is God has blessed you he has it I'm not talking about isolation I'm talking about God sheltering you separating you from the world you don't know how blessed you are today to be sitting in a church away from all the bad influence with an opportunity to be something great for God but instead of uh, enjoying the blessings you're embracing the bitterness God's got so many blessings for you to be able to grow in Him and do something for Him. But instead, you're saying, nah, uh uh-uh. Nah, Daddy didn't have time for me last week, so I'm not going to serve God for Him this week. No, Mama was too busy cooking a meal for that family whose loved one passed away, so I I don't think I got time for Mama this week. Bitter feelings. Could it be that Jethro didn't draw his sword? All you got to do is get out your sword, pick up where they left off, but instead we're angry. Bitter, selfish, prideful. And because of that, you won't draw out your sword. Bitter feelings, behavior of foolishness, borderline friends. But could it be be that Jether didn't pull out his sword? And I believe ultimately this is the reason because of what the Bible says. Could it be because of the bondage of failure? Notice what the Bible says. For he feared because he was yet a youth. He was afraid he couldn't do it. I I can't live up to it. I can't live up to the expectations. I can't shout the way that daddy shouts. I can't can't weep and lead people to the Lord the way mama can. I can't teach a Sunday school class the way grandpa does it. God, listen to me, God has put you in a position to succeed. Do you know what the indictment was on Eli's sons? It was that Eli had honored them above God. God visited Eli and he said, because you have honored your children above me, and you know what their name means? Well, you got Huffna and you got Phineas. And I know what their names mean. One means serpent. The other one means pugilist. One of them talked like a snake and the other one was willing to back him up and fight you over it. But the Bible gives a little tag on there. It calls them sons of Belial or some would say sons of Belial. You know what that phrase means? To fail to be useful. Now, I mean, don't, don't let me look too much into this, but I'm just thinking to fail to be useful implies that they had an opportunity to be useful. Now, my daddy didn't get saved until he was in his mid-twenties. Matter of fact, I don't even know the daddy that I hear people talk about in the past. I meet people that knew my daddy years ago. My dad's been saved since February of 1976. I mean, I was born in 1982. I know nothing about the man that I've heard people talk about all these years. I know nothing about the fighting. I know nothing about the drinking. I know nothing about the all the rabble rousing and all the all, all the trouble and the. I know nothing about that man. Why? Because God changed my daddy's life one day, Amen. and because of that, I'm a I'm a second generation Christian. There are some things that I'm not having to fight and put up with because yeah. my daddy made some decisions as a young man to serve the Lord. Amen. There may be somebody in here. Maybe somebody in here who. You don't know what it is to be out there in the world. You don't, you don't know what it's like. And so you don't realize how good you got it. Yeah. You, don't, you don't realize how the Lord has really blessed you. And God has put you in a position and an opportunity to be useful for Him. Yeah. 
Notice this. God's put you in a position to succeed. A lot of, a lot of hard work is done in this church. A lot of hard work is done in your home to put you in the best position. Some of the hardest battles have already been won. Listen, my children, there are some battles that my children won't have to fight. Why? Because me and my wife already fought them. We already cut some things off. We drew out our sword. Listen, there's 135,000 things that he had already defeated. And all Jethro's got is two. Young people, listen to me now. There's 135,000 things your parents have already fought that you ain't even going to have to fight. And matter of fact, the only two things, some of the only two things you'll even have to fight, they've done brought it to you handcuffed. Standing before you on their knees with no means of fighting back. You've been putting a great opportunity to succeed. But instead we say, I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can live up to it. I don't know if I can preach the way daddy preaches. I don't, I don't know if I can sing the way mama sings. He feared because he was a youth. This man Jether, this man Jether didn't draw out his sword. Because of that, he, I believe he pays a Terrible price. As far as I, best I can tell, we don't read about him anymore in all the Bible. He just totally disappears. He totally disappears. Now listen, we're talking about in the Bible, when you have a great man, and that man begat another great man, we read something about him, generally speaking. But Jethro just disappears. Totally gone. And the thought in my mind is, what could have been had Jethro stayed right with God? What could have been had Jethro done? Could it be? Could it be? that God could have used Jether to bridge the gap between Gideon and Samson? I have these thoughts run through my mind. What, what impact would it have had on Samson had Jether stayed right with God? What impact had it had on Israel had Jether stayed right with God? Will anything be said about us? After this little space, you have one opportunity. After that space, what's going to be said about you? What if that's the opportunity to be great for God? You miss it. I want you to notice three things that happen when you do draw out your sword. We see why he maybe didn't, but I'm going to give you three things about what happens when you draw out your sword. Number one, notice this. First of all, the enemy is killed. These men were the enemies of God. Listen, it's always right to destroy the enemy. Did you hear what they said? They were the children of the king. The ones we killed were the children of the king. It's almost as if they're, that arrogance, that promise, we meant to do it. We meant to kill you and your people. And if we'd have had a chance, we'd have killed Hey, listen, that one thing that you're hanging on to, that you're petting, that you're keeping it secret, that thing will kill you if it gets a chance. Amen. That friend that you think is your buddy, and you think, well, they're, they're just a little friend, they're a little companion, they will kill you if they get a chance. They'll ruin your testimony. The enemy is killed. These men were their enemies. It's always right to destroy the enemy. You don't even have to pray about it. Ain't that wonderful? You don't have to pray about it? Like you don't have to pray about reading your Bible? You don't have to pray about whether or not it's right to pray. You don't have to pray about whether or not it's right to hand out a tract. It's always right to do it. You don't even have to pray about fooling with the enemy and kill them because it's always right to do it. Amen. The enemy is killed. Notice this secondly. When you draw out your sword, it's an example to your kindred. See, Jether is the firstborn. He's the firstborn. And if, and if you read very much and study very much in the Bible, if you read very much in secular history, you'll see a pattern with the firstborn. That firstborn has major influence. In every family, the firstborn has... The devil has a plan to destroy the firstborn. All through your Bible, you'll see the devil's trying to kill that firstborn. Why? Because he knows that's where the influence is at. Jethro is the firstborn. There might be an oldest brother or an oldest sister in here. 
And God, the devil's trying to use you to hurt your family, but God's wanting to use you to be that example to little brother, to little sister. God's wanting to use you to be that example that if you'll do it, they'll do it. And more often than not, if my oldest won't do it, the rest of my kids have trouble with it. But if my oldest will step out and say, you know what, I think I can do it. It gives them the confidence. Well, if he can do it, I can do it. And it gives the next one the confidence. Well, if they can do it, I can do it. And you'll never know the example that you're being to your brother or sister just by simply doing what God's already told you to do. The enemy is killed. It's an example to our kindred. And then notice this. He's, it encouraged his king. If he draws out his sword and kills the enemy, Gideon's his daddy, but he's also his leader. What kind of encouragement would it have been to his preacher, to his daddy, to his king, to his leader by just drawing out his sword? And how much more encouraging will it be to our Father in heaven? How much more would it be encouraging to him that it would please him if we would just simply take our sword out, cut some things off, deal with the problem? Listen, you've been put in the best position to succeed. You're in one of the best churches in America. You may not even realize you're one of the best churches in America. And you've been put in a great position to succeed. But don't blow it just like Hophni and Phinehas. Just like Jether. Just like others. We could go through the Word of God. You've been put in a great position to succeed. Draw out your sword and do what God's told you to do. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the Word of God. But I want to thank you for your help. Thank you for your strength. But I pray you take everything we said. Help it to make sense. Would I pray for every young person, every teenager, every adult in here, God, that you'll speak to their heart. Help us to do serious business with you. Let you have your way. And Lord, help us to draw out our sword and do the work that you've given us to do. Lord, for all that you do, we'll be careful to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to be back in the house of the Lord on Friday morning. And uh, thank you, Brother Lindsay, for preaching not just to my kids, but thank you for preaching my heart. Appreciate Don't you like preaching? And uh, young folks, I'm not sure, I know you hear this all the time, but I'm not sure there's a young person in this building that understands how blessed you are to get a steady diet of Bible preaching. Um, The only reason I'm standing behind this pulpit this morning, and the only reason Brother Lindsay stood behind this pulpit this morning is because of preaching that changed our lives. Um, I've said this before, Jesus saved my soul, but preaching has saved my life. Many times, preaching has saved my life. Young person, I want you to give me your undivided attention for a minute. God does something through preaching. He doesn't do through anything else. I, I, uh, I remember as a young man, not long after I got preached, I had some men, I'm telling you, they'd knock the bark off your tree, brother. I mean, I remember when I answered call to preach Dr. Young, I had preachers get up some seasoned men of God. And I mean, brother, they would drop the hammer just instilling character and integrity. And they would make statements like this. They said, you boys, call yourself, I mean, preaching to a bunch of preacher boys. So you boys that say that God's called you to preach, if if you don't get up in the morning and make your bed up, amen. He said, if you ain't got enough character and integrity to make your bed up in the morning, don't you get up in the pulpit and claim God's called you to preach. He said, God ain't called you to preach if you ain't got enough integrity to make your bed up. I mean, that's what kind of preaching I cut my teeth on. And it did something in me. And instilled some things in me. And uh, you'll thank God for preaching. You'll thank God you got a preacher. Thank God for some, 
some seasoned men of God to pour their lives into young folks. I want you to take the Word of God with me this morning and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm just, I'm going to just pour my heart out to you this morning. I sure am proud of you young folks. Excited to see you excited about serving Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Before I read my text this morning, I'll say this. Only all the young folks, look at the preacher for a minute. What I'm fixing to share with you will determine whether you make it or not. You, you young fellas, if y'all will, y'all come over to this side. I want to I just get down to where you're at. Y'all, all the young folks, Kara, you young fellas and Kara, y'all come on over here. Y'all get over here, where, or at least up here on the front where I can get to you. I want to be able to talk to you for a minute. All the young folks, get up here real good and close. Because what I'm fixing to share with you, not because I'm saying it, but because it's Bible, is going to determine whether you're still in church five years from now. What I'm fixing to share with you guys and ladies is going to determine whether or not you go down as one who made a difference for Jesus or whether you end up being a has-been or used-to-be. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10, and I know the terminology that's used here is warfare terminology. Brother Lindsay was talking about killing enemies and slaying enemies with the sword. And some folks, that may be kind of hard for you to get a hold of. But let me explain to you a little bit in detail what Brother Lindsay was laboring on there when he was talking about killing those enemies. I want you to look with me in the Word of God in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Would you stand with me as we look at just a few verses of Scripture here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Look in verse number 3. The Bible, This is Paul now, a preacher of the gospel, writing, inspired of the Holy Ghost to write these words. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought, to the obedience of Christ. Notice there's two words that are used here that I want to call your attention to. He said, casting down imaginations. Then the last verse that we just read, bringing into captivity every thought. In other words, these verses have everything to do with what goes on right here. Yes, sir. 
If the Lord will help me, I'll give you my title in just a minute, but I want to preach to you for just a few minutes on our thought life. Father, thank you for the Word of God now. I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put this important truth down on the bottom shelf where even the youngest child can get a hold of it. Lord, I pray that you would salvage some young person's life as a result of this message. I pray that you'd spare a teenager from wrecking and ruining their lives as applying this message, Lord, that would protect them in days to come. So give us understanding. Lord, I pray that you would help us to communicate truth in Jesus' name. And the Lord's people said, Amen. You can be seated. When you read Proverbs chapter 23 and you come down to verse number 7, this is what the Bible says. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You know what the Bible's teaching us? The Bible says that we are what we think. Everybody in this building this morning, if we want to know who you are, All we've got to do is see what you've been thinking and that is who you are. We are a personification of our thought life. Our existence, our very being is a product of what we've been thinking. You are where you are this morning because of what you've been thinking in days gone by. You are, amen, how you are, your habits your conduct, your character, your integrity, your spirituality, everything about you is a result of what's going on right here in days gone by leading up to today. And so I want you to notice, he said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's true for every man. And by the way, that is so true that listen to what the Apostle Paul said, in the book of Philippians in chapter number 4. In Philippians chapter number 4, the Apostle Paul was so convinced and the Holy Ghost knew so very well that we are what we think that in Philippians chapter number 4, God gives us a list of things that we ought to think on if we're going to be successful in living for God. He said, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things that he just listed. Now notice, he said if there's going to be any virtue. You know what the word virtue means? The word virtue there means being a man of valor. It has to do with strength or manliness or valor. In other words, if you're going to have any strength to you at all, if you're going to be a strong Christian, he said it's all going to be determined by what you think, not by what you do. You can go to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. You you can be in prayer meeting. You can go to revival meeting. Listen to me. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray every day. But if you do not force your thought life to be disciplined in what you give your mind to, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how faithful to church you are, what kind of parents you've got, everything else will not get the job done if you do not get this one thing right called controlling your mind. Now notice he said, 
if there be any virtue or if there be any praise. Think on these things. You know why there's such an absence of praise in our church today? You cannot think wrong all week and praise the Lord when you get to church. You cannot have your mind on everything under the sun, carnal things all week long, and think that when you get to church that because there's a song that kind of struck a chord in your heart that you're going to praise the Lord. It won't happen, friend, not on any consistent basis. You've got to think right if you're going to worship right. It determines our strength, our virtue. It it determines our praise, our our worship, it determines everything about our spirituality. Everything from your strength to your spirituality to your worship, all of it hinges on this one thing that I'm dealing with this morning. The very secret to joy in your life, the very secret to strength in your life, the key to victory in your life is what goes on right here. So, my duty every morning when I start a day is before I put my feet on the floor in the morning, I've got to get my mind going in the right direction. My duty every morning is to start my day by putting the right things in my mind. Before my feet hit the floor, I've got to wake up with a sword in my hand. I've got to wake up realizing there's an enemy waiting on me that day. And I've got to start first thing in the morning. Get my mind going in the right direction. Because I'm going to tell you why that's so important. Because when you read Romans chapter number 12, verse 1 and 2, the apost- I'm going somewhere. Give me a second now. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Why? That ye may prove What is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God? You know what that word prove means? That you may prove what the will of God is. The word prove there means to discern. How many of you, you say, preacher, I want to do God's will. You know, we've got some young folks, I'm I'm convinced sitting here, they want to do the will of God for their life, but they don't know what the will of God is. They're they're trying to discern the will of God. How does a young person discern the will of God for your life? Here's how you do it. He said that you may discern, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God for your life. Here's what you do. First thing you got to do is you got to present your bodies to God. You cannot discern the will of God for your life until you've given God your body as a sacrifice. Your body now belongs to God. Your body now belongs to Jesus. And until you present your body holy, present your body as a living sacrifice holy. In other words, if your body's not holy, you cannot discern the will of God for your life. Until your body is holy, you will struggle with what the will of God is. You'll wrestle with what the will of God is. But you cannot discern the will of God without having your body presented to God as a holy sacrifice. Verse 1 speaks of your body. 
verse 2 speaks of your mind. God has to have your body and your mind for you to discern the will of God for your life. Be not conformed to this world. Now verse 1 is talking about the body. Verse 2 is talking about the mind. In other words, worldliness is not what you wear and how you talk and how you act. That's a result of being worldly. Worldliness is found in verse 2. It's not your body that's worldly. It's your mind that's worldly and it shows up in your body. Be not conformed to this world. But in other words, this world has a mold. It wants you to think like this world, young lady, wants you to think like all the other young ladies out there in the world. This world wants you young men. Okay, listen to me. All the world, they've got a mold for how a young man ought to think. He ought to be thinking about women, dollar signs and money and living for things and prestige and power. And that's what the world says you ought to chase after with all of your life. He said, don't think like the world. Be not conformed to this world. But be transformed. You... Let God transform the way you think. Let God renew your mind. Transform the way, reprogram the way you think. Lost people have a certain way they think, Dr. Young. God has to reprogram us when He saves us to think different than the world, to think contrary to the world. Now I say all that for a reason. Because God understands that that is the first step to discerning the will of God for your life, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect. You cannot even know, discern the will of God for your life until God has your body and God has your mind. What's this now? Our mind is the battleground on which victory is won or lost. Your mind is what directs your day every morning that you get up. That's why Satan targets your mind. Let me tell you what Satan's after this morning. He's after your mind because if he wins that, he wins the prize. If Satan gets your mind, he's got it all. If Satan gets my mind, he's got it all. Listen to me. That's why he wants to get your mind early in the morning because the devil knows if he can get control of our mind early that morning, we've lost the battle that day. I have found this to be true in my own life, preacher. If I don't If I don't get control, if I don't win the battle early in the morning, my day's done. I'll spend the rest of my day trying to get control of what I should have got control of the time my feet hit the floor that morning. If I don't control it from the very first, I'll wrestle with it, fight with it, I'll have a battle on my hands all day long trying to get back what would have been a lot easier to have control of had I taken control of it early in the morning. And so therefore the devil knows that if he can get your mind early that day, he's got the day wrapped up. Because he knows that if he can get the world's thoughts in you early, and get you thinking like the world early that day. The rest of your day is done. Now, listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 6. I'm laying all this, and I'm coming back to my text. I'm just laying some groundwork. Ephesians chapter 6 is talking about the arm of God, a battle. 
How many of you young folks realize you're in a battle? Listen, there are more enemies. Now, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up in a Christian school, homeschool. My kids, this is all they've ever known, Brother Lindsay. You talked about brother. I'm telling you, that blessed my heart what you said. Caden, I hope you and my care or wherever you are. Baby, I hope you understand there's some battles that you won't ever have to fight because God in His grace and mercy let your mom and daddy fight them years ago. But nevertheless, there's enemies that you'll face in this generation that even as a lost young man, brother, listen, when I was coming through high school, I went to a public school and it was wicked then. But brother, we were not bombarded. There was no such thing as a cell phone. When I came through school, brother, listen, nobody had a cell phone. There was no such thing as internet. The only computers they had, it was that DOS prompt, you know, the little black screen with the green letters. And we went to the computer. I remember when they first started using those. And I'm not that old. I'm not nearly as old as your preacher is. He's an old man. But brother, listen to me preacher. We cannot deny our children are faced with temptations we never had to wrestle with. There's enemies coming from every direction, brother. Listen, sometimes I feel like a dinosaur. I I feel so outdated because kids are tempted with things that I don't even know how they work. I don't know. Listen, you can talk about Facebook. I don't have one. I don't have a Facebook. I don't know what one is. I wouldn't know it if I was on it. I'm just saying, brother, there's just some things out there that I'm not... have to try to familiarize myself with the dangers of it because I I realize how many people are getting caught up in it so I preach against it but I'm not preaching against it because I'm real familiar with it there's things brother Lindsay those kids y'all bringing on those buses man we have no idea what they sit in front of day after day the environment they're raised in this world is different than it was when we were coming up and with it comes new enemies and new temptations and new struggles. Don't you young fellows listen to me now. How old are you, son? Ten. Listen to me. By the time we can't even imagine how wicked this world's going to be by the time you're 15. If it's come this far in the last 20 years, you think of how far it's going to go in the next 10 years. And here's what Paul said. Put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. Here's why. That ye may be able to stand against what? The what? Wiles of the devil. Now, do you know what that word wiles means? That word wiles is the Greek word methodia. And it's where we get our word methods from. It means methods or strategies. And so here's what Paul's saying. It's important that we put on armor, and not just a few pieces, but put on the whole armor of God. God's given you everything you need to protect you from the enemy. One of those pieces of armor is a helmet of salvation because there are fiery darts that he's aiming at your mind. There's fiery dogs. He wants you to think like a saved person. The helmet of salvation means you're to think like a saved man, not like a lost man. You're to think like a saved young lady, not like a lost young lady. Put on the helmet of salvation. And he says, not just that, but put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the methods or the strategies 
of the devil. You know what he's saying? The devil, while you were sleeping last night, the devil was strategizing how to get to your mind. Wow! While you sit in church all week, Brother Philip, the devil sees the potential in you. He sees God's hand on your life. And he knows that if he can just get in here, he will handicap you. He will hamstring you. And the devil has been methodically strategizing how to bring you down right here. Everybody that's ever fallen, all the way back to Eve, falling in the Garden of Eden. It didn't start when she picked that fruit off the tree. It didn't start when she put it in her mouth. That battle was lost here before it was lost anywhere else. Every sin you'll ever commit is lost here before it's lost with our hands. There is a tipping point. There is a tipping point to temptation a yielding point to where temptation becomes sin. And it becomes sin before you commit the act. It becomes sin the moment you yield your mind to it. And the devil is strategizing how to get in there. He's checking you out. He's circling the walls of your mind. He's looking for a weak spot. He's looking for a loose hinge on the gate. He's looking for a place to get in. In other words, he's strategizing every day how to get into your mind, how to get your mind off God onto the things of the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the ruin of your mind. He's trying his best to get your mind on things that have no eternal value. He wants to get your mind. And that's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians. Now look at these verses again. Look at them. Notice what he says in in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Look in verse number 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not... What's the next word? War. Underscore that word war. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Verse 4. For the weapons, underscore that word weapons, of our warfare, underscore that word warfare, are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down. Notice the next phrase, strongholds. Notice in verse number 5, the latter part of the verse, and bringing into captivity. Notice all this wartime terminology that's being used here. Everything about these verses have to do with warfare. War. War, he talks about war, warfare, strongholds, captivity, mighty things. This, this is talking about all-out war. And all these verses are referring to the mind. There's a war going on right now, young man, for your mind. Right now. While you're sitting in church, Satan's strategizing how to get your mind off God, onto the things of the world. And He'll do it while you're sitting in church if you'll let Him. You'll sit in a revival meeting like this and be thinking about the latest and greatest, amen, trinkets and gadgets and games and whatever that's come out. 
thinking about a ball game or some movie or some junk yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything he can use. Yes, sir. Now, here's what I want you to see. All right? Now, we're where I want to go. In biblical times, when a group of people began to congregate in an, in an area, in an unpopulated, um, they're going to start a city. When a group of people began to civilize and organize in an area, and they began to build a community or a city, here's what they would do first. The first two things they would do is the first thing is they would build a wall around it. The second thing they would do, Dr. Young, is they would go on the inside of that wall and build a tower. Now the tower was higher than the wall. Here's why. Because the wall was built to keep the enemy out. But Brother Michael, the tower was built to check the enemy out. And so therefore the tower, now listen to me young person, listen to me young lady. The tower was higher than the wall. Now here's what the devil will try to tell you. The devil will try to tell you all those walls that God has put in your life to protect you. All those standards and those barriers, all those walls that, that your parents have put in your home. There are certain things you don't watch. There are certain places you don't go. There are certain things you don't do. And you may not understand all that. And the world will say, well, look at you. They're trying to hold you in prison. They're trying to keep you in captivity. Listen, that wall was not built to keep them in. That wall was built to keep the enemy out. If you're not careful, the devil will have you looking at all those big walls and you'll start feeling like, hey man, he'll convince you. He'll convince you that you're, that you're being restrained. That, that, that you're being limited. But let me tell you what you're being restrained from. You're being restrained from the danger that's lurking outside of those walls waiting to destroy your life. Those walls are not, not there to take away your freedom. Those walls are there to protect you from the enemy. But then there was a tower built, Brother Lindsay. That tower was built so that a watchman could look out and he could see the danger. The walls were to keep the enemy out, but the tower was to check the enemy out so that the person in that tower could strategize. They could strategize how to defend themselves against any immediate danger that was coming on the scene. And so I want you to notice something here. If anybody wanted to conquer a city, the first two things they would have to do, preacher, number one, the first thing they would have to do is somehow penetrate that wall. They could not get... They could not get to you until they first penetrated that wall. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what they would do is they would, they would look for the weakest place in the wall. And everybody has a weak place. Yeah, yeah. And the enemy would look for the weakest spot in the yeah. wall or in the gates. So the first thing they would do is they would have to penetrate the wall. 
the second thing they would do once they got through the wall or through the gates, the very next thing they would do was try to get control of that tower. Do you know why? Do you know why they try to get control of that tower? Is because if they could get control of that tower, then they would be in control of the battle. Whoever had control of the tower had, listen to me now, they had a leg up on the other person, on the other army. Here's why. Because they could strategize. They could see where all the troops were. They could see where the hot spots of the battle were. And whoever got control of the tower normally ended up winning the battle. Now I want you to see something here. With that in mind, this text takes on a new life. But here's the problem. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 is not talking about a city. He's talking about our mind. But all these terminologies are used found in biblical days when cities were attacked. And the same strategies that was used to protect the city must be used to protect your mind if we're going to be victorious against the attacks of the devil. Now here's what I want you to see. Look in verse number 5. Everybody look at it now. Look in verse number 5. He said in verse number 5, back in our text, he said, casting down imaginations. That word imaginations means computations or reasoning. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Now notice there's enemies that are exalting themselves. The word exalt means to lift up. In other words, the enemy's trying to get in the tower. The enemy's trying to exalt himself. And he said, you've got to keep the enemies out of that tower. Cast them down! The enemies, once they penetrate the wall, they're going for the tower. Once they get through the barriers, the standards that are put there to protect you. You see, there's some things your mom and daddy has built around your family to keep you. Amen. There's some battles you may never have to fight up here because of the barriers your mom and dad's put around. There's some things that's never going to come into your home, never going to be on a TV screen or a computer screen. Why? Because your mom and daddy has built some walls. And you'll thank God your mom and daddy's built some walls. But the the devil's slick and he's strategizing how to get through those walls. And he may use those wrong kind of friends that Brother Lindsay talked about. He may use any number of things. But the first thing he's going to do if he gets to the walls, he's going for the tower. He's going for this. He's going for the mind. He's going for the tower. Let me explain. Let me illustrate. I, I don't know if I'm connecting with the young kids. I want all these kids. You fellas, you, yeah, you come here, you two guys, and you, you three guys, you right here on the end. Yeah, y'all come on. All y'all come on. You fellas, come on, come on. All right, here's what I want y'all to do. Come on. Yeah, all you guys, y'all come on. All right, just start walking circles around me this way. Everywhere I go, you just walk circles around me, okay? Just keep walking. Come on, walk circles around me. Wherever I'm going, y'all walking circles around me. All right? Now, you know what these are? Y'all, come on. You know what? Oh, sorry, buddy. You know what these are? All these are thoughts that Satan wants to use to get in the tower. All day long, he's strategizing. 
everywhere we go, they're swirling around. They're there waiting to get in. And notice what he said. Casting down, um, you know what these are trying to do? They're trying to climb up in the tower. They're trying to get up here. And he said, you've got to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself, every high thing that's trying to exalt itself, he said, you've got to throw it down. You've got to cast down. Amen. Why? Because if you don't cast them down, they will become strongholds in your life. If the enemy can never get in your tower, he's got a stronghold. If he can ever climb up in the tower and you give him power, he's got a stronghold. And so what do you do? You've got to cast them down. Cast them down. Cast them down. And then he says, casting down imagination. And every high thing, that means you keeping them out of the tower. Don't, don't let them get up here. Don't give your mind to them. Don't give the tower to them. Then he said, and bringing into captivity. Keep going, guys. Not some or most, but every thought. Not only do we, we have a twofold responsibility, Brother Lindsay. Number one, to keep them out of the tower, to cast them down. Number two, to bring them into captivity. We don't just cast them down and let them run wild. You can't just let your thoughts run free. You can't let them go. You can't let your mind go. You can't let your thoughts go. You know what you do? You grab them and you take them in captivity. Everyone, you put them down. Put them down. There you go. Everyone. You put them down. Everyone, you cast them down. You twist their arm up. You chase them down. If they try to run from you, chase them down. Choke them down. Bring into captivity every thought. And here's what you do with them. You bring them into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You don't just let them go. You make them obey Christ. You make every thought, come here son, you make every thought, I'm not going to hurt you, obey Christ. And now, notice who's in control. Christ is in control. Now, thank you guys, you can be seated. Now I want to give you that visual because here's what, it listen, this is what Paul's talking about here. Notice what the Lord calls imaginations. He calls them strongholds if they ever exalt themselves. Amen. Notice there's one thing. Brother, there, if there's anything that I've learned about my flesh, there is a traitor inside of me. There is a traitor inside of you. Because there's a traitor inside of every one of us. Because here's how it works. And I've never understood this, Dr. Young. I don't know why our flesh is so wicked. But I'm going to tell you what, how our flesh operates. What a traitor there is inside of us. We can spend years building walls and building barriers and strengthening gates and giving all, amen, and building towers. We can spend years getting all those things in place. And while we've got every brick just laid just right, every mortar mixed just right, we've got every, amen, every wall, every Barrier, you know what we'll do? In a moment of weakness, we'll walk over to the gate, unlock it. I mean, we've spent years building walls, and we'll open the gate and let the enemy walk right in. 
You know why we do that? Because there's a traitor inside of us called the flesh. Not only do we have the devil and the world out there working against us, we've got an enemy within us that will sell us out if we yield to Listen to me now. If we give in to him, he will walk right over and let the enemy walk right in. And so the moment we start thinking humanistically or horizontally, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. We start losing control. But let me tell you something. Once the enemy gets control of that tower, once you fall into the trap of thinking that way, you're done for that day. I'm just being honest with you. You're done for that day. I'm not saying you can't fight him, but once he's in, he's in. Once the enemy gets in, you've got a battle on your hands the rest of that day. So the easiest thing for me to do is to keep him out from the start of the day. And how do I do that? I've got to get to that tower before he does. I've got to run to the... That's what I'm preaching on this morning. Running to the tower. Every morning when I get up, I need to make a beeline to that tower before the enemy does. Now notice now what Paul's saying here. According to the terminology Paul's using, by the way, you better believe, brother, those, those New Testament believers, they understood the wartime terminology when he was talking about casting down and strongholds and all that. He knew. They knew what he was talking about. But notice now, the enemies already penetrated the barrier. They penetrated the wall of protection and they're sweeping through the city now. Notice now, they're sweeping through the city and now the enemy, the first thing he wants to do is get to the tower. He said in verse 5, notice what he says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into cap... In other words, it exalts itself against everything you know about God to be right and to be true. He wants to cause you to think contrary to the knowledge of God. It exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. In other words, there's thoughts that you have from your knowledge of God, but these enemies wants to exalt itself above the knowledge of God. He said, you've got to cast them down. Casting down. Casting down. Bringing into captivity. Remember, those in the tower were exalted above everything else. That means whoever has the tower has the advantage. And if you let the devil get in your tower early in the day, I promise you this, he's the one that's going to have victory in your life the rest of that day. He'll start destroying everything that God's trying to do in your life. I don't know why the Lord laid this on my heart. I had a message for you I told the preacher about, but God wouldn't give me liberty to preach. I really felt impressed this morning to let you know that there's a battle for your mind this morning. You fellas, you ladies don't know how blessed you are to be raised in a church with such strong walls around it. To be raised in families and in homes that your mom and daddy has spent their life. You were born with walls around you. You were born with gates, sturdy, strong gates 
around you. You were born with somebody in a tower looking out for danger that you couldn't see. And you don't know how blessed you are to have mamas and daddies, to have all those things in place. But let me tell you, just because your daddy's a preacher or just because your daddy's a godly man, just because your mama loves Jesus and has standards and convictions does not mean the devil says, oh, well, let's find somebody else. No, sir, he is strategizing. He has wiles. He has methods that he wants to use to get to your mind. You say, preacher, what do we do? Here's the solution. This is simple. Every morning you get up, before your feet hit the floor, you've got to run to that tower. Get control of that tower before the enemy does. Because if the spirit man doesn't get control of it early, you'll spend the rest of your day trying to get control of the tower of your mind. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heads are bowed. Young person, I don't care if you're five years old or 15 or 20. I'm telling you there's an enemy that while you were sleeping last night, he was strategizing. He's trying to get around the wall, the barriers of a godly mom and daddy. He's trying to get around the walls or the barriers of the standards and convictions that your mom and daddy has put in place around you. He's trying to strategize. He's looking for a weak place in the wall. And I want you to understand this morning the only hope you've got is not just to trust in those walls but you stay in control of that tower because whoever has control of the tower is the one that's normally victorious in the battle. Father, thank you for the Word of God. I pray that you would take these scattered remarks and that you would collect them together Draw them together like a cubby of quail. And Lord, help them to make sense and clearly communicate the truth that you want communicated in this service. Lord, I beg you that you'd protect the potential that's in this building. Protect the minds of these young folks. They have so many things stacked in their favor. I know the enemy is relentless. He does not give up. And I beg you today that you would be merciful Help these young men and these young ladies, Lord, to run to the tower early every morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Preacher, I'm done. Yeah, she got me into this. I'm 74. I was raised in a poor home, real poor home. We didn't have anything, but we didn't know it. We thought everybody was poor. And we didn't gripe about it and complain about it and then have a chip on our shoulder and feel like we've been mistreated in life. And um, my life was a flowery life. I was, I was a loner. My brother's three years, well, one brother's three years younger than me, and the other one's 11 years younger than me. No, well, I was, yeah, 11 years. So uh, my youngest brother was a little bitty baby, so uh, he was, I was his best friend, or he was mine. A three-year-old, the three, one three years younger than me was, uh, well, you don't want to run around with punks, you know, kids that don't know nothing. So I lived a loner life. My best friend was a hound, a, a, a beagle hound, and, uh, and a, and a three-legged dog. And uh, 
I had a wonderful life. I learned to hunt when I was real young. Hunted with a rifle till I was 12 years old. When I was 12 years old, I was big enough to hold a shotgun. Everybody stood behind me while I pulled the trigger and the thing misfired and I flinched and Dad jumped on me and almost cussed me. And um, so I learned to quit flinching, just pull the trigger and suffer the consequences. Does everybody hear me good? We lived country life. We really did live the country life. We had a cow. And we raised hogs. And we raised our own meat. And, and uh, we couldn't afford to buy milk. We had to milk the cow. And when Daddy got a little raise, we got one quart of milk a month. And uh, so we was poor. Lived on a soapstone hillside. If you don't know what soapstone is, it won't. It's just garbage. It's just dried clay, I guess you'd say. Wouldn't even raise broom sage. Pretty pitiful. And uh, but my daddy, my grandmother outlived. She outlived two, three men. She outlived my my mother's daddy. Then she outlived my aunt's daddy, and then she outlived a third husband from Wheeling, West Virginia. And he had about seven children, and all of them were a bunch of maniacs. They were just crazy. The oldest one was worse than all of them. You couldn't trust him with nothing. But her, the, her husband, which would have been my step-grandfather, was a good, really good old man. And him and Daddy went hunting down in Litchfield, down around Grayson County, Kentucky. They were raised, in, my daddy was born and raised on Bloody Ridge. How about that? Bloody Ridge. It's still called Bloody Ridge. I caught my first fish on Bloody Ridge on a lake down there. But they went down there hunting. Daddy and Grandpa went down there hunting. I think this is my favorite story of all of them, Caroline. I have a lot of flowery, flowery, great stories that have a moral, uh, almost hang, your, hang you teaching in them. They went hunting in the winter, cold winter. Kentucky's colder than this. And it's freezy and frosty and bad. And Daddy and Grandpa were out hunting. And Daddy shot a squirrel running up a sycamore tree. And it fell. And when Daddy got the squirrel, it had a baby squirrel in its mouth. And uh, so Daddy picked the squirrel up. The little baby squirrel was still alive. And its eye was, eyes were opened. If I remember the fullness of it, at any rate, they went on down the way, going to hunt on down the way, hunting squirrels, and Daddy couldn't get over that little squirrel being in that mother's mouth. So he told Grandpa, whose name was Eddie, he said, Eddie, I'm going back and see if there's any more little squirrels in that nest because it was such cold winter they wouldn't know to make it, and especially without a mother. So Daddy was a young man then. He's about in his 40s. He climbed that tree Climbed a sycamore tree. You understand what a sycamore tree is. He climbed way out the limb on a sycamore tree and pulled that nest open, and there was three more little squirrels in it that didn't have their eyes open. He had a big old, we didn't know what camouflage was. We just wore overall clothes, and, and uh, Daddy took those three little squirrels and put them in his pocket with that fourth one. Climbed down out of there and brought them home. Four little squirrels, one with his eyes open, three not. If you catch a wild animal with its eyes closed, you can pet it. But if its eyes are open, you, can't, you can never pet it. It'll always be wild. 
So he brought them home with us. And my brother, my little brother, was just born. And so maybe two years old, I don't know. Then my next brother was three years younger than me. And then myself. And then Grandma's last child was Patsy. And she was about a year younger than me, but she was my aunt. But they lived all down there around Clarkson and Litchfield, and we lived in Jefferson County. So we had built a house. It was twelve. It was a twenty-four by twenty-four on a twenty-four by twenty-four basement, and the basement wasn't finished. And Daddy had found somebody gave him a big old coal furnace, great big old round coal furnace, about that big. <clears throat> it had no electricity to make it run. It was an updraft. It just kind of fed heat, went goes up and. As it goes up, it sucks the cool air down, just a natural thing. And the year that that happened, I, I, was, uh, I was never born to be lazy and ornery. That's something that ain't just about gone, but I had gathered seven and a half bushels of walnuts that year, knocked the hull off of them. They were in the basement dried, seven and a half bushel. And so they were in the basement and... Uh, so we took the little squirrels, and they were so young, and we just, it just didn't look like it was going to make it. Mama took a thimble, I mean took an eyedropper and a, and a little bit of milk, warm milk, and warmed it, and we fed them four squirrels with the eyedropper. And behold, they made it. And they got where they'd suck on that eyedropper like a little baby. And we loved our squirrels. I bet y'all love them squirrels, wouldn't you? This really happened to me. It's not no joke. And uh, we had a about a 10 by 10 square in the corner of the basement down there, and this guy would bring coal and put it through the window, and it was all full of coal. That's how we heated our house in the winter. And um, so we put the we, we raised them as best we could upstairs until we had to, we couldn't keep them up there. They got active. And so we carried them downstairs, and we just let them run downstairs. And um, we'd, I'd go down every day and take them a saucer of milk, and they'd drink their milk out of the saucer. And then, and then I said, well, you know, they're old enough to start eating, so we started busting them walnuts and picking them kernels out of them walnuts, and they started eating walnuts. And uh, then we got where we'd bust the walnut and lay it down, and they'd dig the kernel out theirself. And then the day came when we heard them eating, the, cutting the walnut. You could hear them scratch, eating that walnut. And then you couldn't go downstairs barefooted anymore because like walking on glass, it'd be everywhere. And uh, this never really happened to me. So we had an old television in them days when the, it was the first 21-inch televisions came out, old black and white thing, and we'd watch wrestling on Friday, Friday night. And ain't nobody cuss, and there was no trash on it. You know, you could have one then. But I went downstairs one night, one evening, to check on my squirrels, and I couldn't find them. I looked the basement over. Daddy had, you don't understand what sealed is. Sealed means, it means Daddy had put sheetrock on the, about eight foot of the back of that basement. And there were the floor joists all open, no insulation or anything. So it's kind of unfinished and rough. Well, I went down there and looked for them squirrels. I couldn't find them nowhere. I looked in them holes in them floor joists. I looked everywhere. I said, Daddy, the squirrels have got away. And Daddy said, they didn't get out of that basement. He sealed it. We didn't have mice or nothing in our house. 
It was sealed. We wouldn't let us open the door, nothing. I mean, we kept it clean. They kept my house. So he said, they didn't get out of that basement. Well, I said, Daddy, they got to be somewhere. Well, he said, just keep looking. Well, that old furnace, it was so tight. Daddy just fixed, he made everything right. That old furnace, it was just an old piece of junk, but he made her work. And it was so tight that if you shut the draft door on it, it put the fire out. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Foreign language. So he tied a knot in the chain so it couldn't close. And he kept that door open about that far so the air would breathe through that old furnace and it'd burn all night. So I'm looking around and I can't find them squirrels and I said, well, that door's open. The crazy little things may be and went in that furnace and I got down on my knees and lo and behold, there's four little nests in that ash pile under there, little old bitty holes that curled around in that ashes and them little squirrels was rolled up in little furry balls and each one of them had him a little hole in them ashes. So I run upstairs and I said, Daddy, the squirrels are going to burn up. They're going to bake down there. He said, no, son, they'll be all right. Well, lo and behold, they were all right. They knew when it was unsafe and they'd go in there and stay all night. And, and, uh, and so they began to grow pretty good. And then they got where they played a lot. They would tear that basement up, and we'd just sit upstairs and laugh. It was better than an amusement park to hear them squirrels chasing each other, barking and running each other. They'd go in and out those old floor joists and just chasing each other and squalling like crazy. And you'd go down there, and I could catch three of them, but one of them I couldn't catch. He'd, he'd bite you. He might not run from you, but if you laid your hands on him, you'd be hurt. That's the one that was shot. Its mother had, her, it was, had him in her mouth. Well, the little guys grew and grew, and well, I don't know how you all were raised, but my mother and dad told me we was little bitty children. She said, um, they taught us that a wild animal is always wanting to be wild. They don't ever want to stay around your house. Leave them alone. Let them go back to the woods or live their life. We caught little rabbits when I was a preacher. We kept, kept that little rabbit in the winter so he could survive. And when spring come, we turn him loose to Briar Patch so he'd be back home again. They want to go home. So we were taught that when we were young. So we, I said, uh, Daddy said, well, we're going to have to fix the little squirrels where they can get out and go home, go back to the woods. We was about uh, five, four or 500 yards from the woods and had a fence line with trees in it, so they just hop from tree to tree and go back to woods if, if they wanted to. So Daddy built a cage about that long, about that high, about that wide. It was, uh, it was about quarter-inch mesh. Uh, I guess there's a chicken. It's not chicken wire, but it's finer than that. You could, you know, it's quarter inch maybe. And then he built a little bitty door so the cat couldn't get in it. Because we had a barn, you know, and we kept uh, stuff in that barn that, them, that the rats liked. So we kept the cat to live in the barn and kill the junk, whatever was in there, rats or whatever. If daddy had hay or if he had corn or something for the hog or whatever, that's what we kept the cat for. So we knew the cat was going to get squirrels. So we built the cage and we set the cage out. As spring came, we set it outside and the cat would try to get the squirrels. And the squir we kept the door shut 
so they couldn't get out. And the squirrels would just have heart attack nearly. They'd just scream and squall and holler and that cat trying to get them. I mean, they made an awful racket, that cat trying to get them, but he couldn't. But he was right there, breathing right in her face, trying to get them. So they grew and grew, and the cat always wanted a squirrel. So finally, we had a back porch about five or six feet out, or maybe eight feet, maybe, and a locust tree right by it. So Daddy went out on the edge of the porch and nailed that cage in that tree so we could go out on the back porch and feed the squirrels right there off the back porch. And uh, so we had uh, opened the cage in the day and let them out, and we kept our eyes in cat, though. And then at night, we'd get them back in. So I don't know how we got them in, but they was tame enough. We got them back in that cage, shut the door, so nothing get them at night, bats or something. I don't know what we'd get them, but anyway. So the, the, the cat would get up on the porch and climb that tree or get up on that porch and try to get them squirrels out of that cage. And so we're trying to teach them that he's going to get them if they're not careful. And they were scared of him. So one day we let them out and we watched them. But one day there was only three squirrels came back to the cage. So I said, Daddy, that cat's got the squirrels. And he said, no, it ain't, it ain't got them yet. I said, yeah, the daddy of the squirrels, the cat's got the squirrel. He's killed that squirrel. And um, I, daddy said, no, son, that squirrel's too wild. That cat couldn't catch him. Said he's went back to the woods. The only trouble was the one that would bite you is not the one that went back to the woods. It was one of them little tame ones. And he didn't go back to the woods either. But daddy taught me into believing it did. So about a week later, another one was gone. Now we've got two squirrels. Daddy, that cat has got that squirrel. He said, no, no, it didn't. He taught me out of it. He finally convinced me that it got, it got in the tree line and went back to the woods. But I know now it didn't go back to the woods. The one that had its eyes open to eat you up was still there. So then the day came when the third one was gone and the only one left was that wild one. And I said, Daddy, you ain't telling me that cat hadn't killed my squirrels. One of them was Patsy's, one was Ronald's, one was Wade's, and one was mine, and mine was still alive. I said, Daddy, that cat has killed them squirrels. He said, no, it hadn't. He just insisted it hadn't killed them squirrels. Now, I'm not mad at my daddy, but he was trying to keep me from being brokenhearted. So I had a grandpa, his name was Hagerman. He had a stroke. He was a, he was a city policeman, a Louisville city policeman, and he had had a stroke, and all he could do was say sawdite. That's all his mouth would say, sawdite. He had tried to think of anything to say, but all he could ever get to come out of his mouth was sawdite. But my daddy and Grandpa Hagerman could carry on a conversation with this sawdite business. I don't know how in the world he did that, but they did. And that old man loved for us to come and visit him. He was real old, real old. Big old tall man, great big old man. So Daddy and Mom said, let's go over to Fairdale and see, see Grandpa. And I said, well, it was on Sunday too. And I said, well, should we leave the squirrel out? He said, yeah, leave it out. It's going to be all right. That's the wild one anyway. So we went on, went to Fairdale. 
saw Grandpa Hagerman. They sat there and talked about two days that morning. And finally we got in the old car and went back home. And I couldn't find my squirrel. I started looking for him, and Daddy said, that squirrel went to the woods. That's the one right there. You know he went to the woods. So Mom and Dad on Sunday afternoon went in and laid down and took a nap, and I, I couldn't sleep. And Daddy worked for a company in Louisville that made veneer, and they, he brought a whole bunch of little square oak poles about four or five feet long home for tomatoes and, you know, our garden. So I just went by the pile and picked one up about five or six feet long. I started down the creek. We had a path went right down the middle of the acre of ground we had moved from the other place down there. Well, I went down through that. I was walking down, and it was really good land for a garden except one place, and it was clay. And it wouldn't hardly raise grass. It wouldn't raise grass, but it wouldn't raise a garden. Corn would be about that tall, and little old nub on it, little old thing. And Daddy tried to raise corn on it anyway. But I was going to the creek, and I looked out to the side, and that cat was out there. His tail was going back and forth. Like that, I said, that cat's got something. So I creeped up behind him. I don't really want to tell you what I found. That cat had chewed that little squirrel's legs off. And it couldn't run, but it was not dead. And he was playing with that little squirrel, hitting it with his paw. And just so thrilled to torment that little squirrel. And I mean, I hit him with that stick. Probably broke his back. He went off the weeds and died. Now listen to me a minute. You know what I had to do? I had to kill that squirrel. Because he couldn't make it. Couldn't live. You know, uh, you know, a snake, if it, if it gets a hold of your pet, it'll swallow it. But you know what a cat will do with it? It'll torment it until it's tired of it, and then it'll kill it. You know what it says in 1 Peter 5, 8? He said, you have an adversary, like a roaring lion, a cat, going about seeking whom he may devour. Can you hear me good? Let me tell you something. Boys, he's creeping around you and you don't see him. But mother and dad have built a cage to keep you from him. But you don't like the cage, do you? You don't like the cage. I'll be glad and I'm 18, I'm out of here. You listen to me? And I'm 18, I'm out of here. That's what Bill Rice said. When I get out of here, I'm going to quit this Sunday school junk. I'm going to live the way I want to live. You hate the cage. And all in God's name the cage is about is keeping you from getting your legs chewed off and somebody having to destroy you. Is that worth hearing? Huh? You better know it's worth hearing, buddy. It's as real as your life is. It's not little squirrels. It's you that's about to go down the tubes and you think the cages have bothered you. It's aggravated you. 
Don't do that. Mother and dad are trying to keep you. That's what he's talking about. Come to church and enjoy church. Get in and enjoy it. Stay in the cage as long as you can. Don't never mess with that cat. Never mess with that cat. You're not a match for him and nobody else is. I'm not. Your preacher's not. Your preacher's daddy's not. Your mom and dad is no match for him. Nobody is. He's smarter than you are and stronger than you are. And he's subtle. You know, we ought to learn that God doesn't have to subtly do anything. He's open and up front. I love you and I want to save you. But the devil, everything he does is creeping. It's in the dark. He's creeping around, creeping around all the time. Hiding. Pulling some kind of joke. Trying to get to you. And if he can hang into you, just hang on to you, you can't get out of his grip. It says he takes you captive at his will. Yeah. Paul said, delivering themselves from the devil who took them captive at his will. How can you deliver yourself from somebody who took you captive at his will? How can you do that? You want to know how to do that? Sure you want to know how to do that. You cry mayday real loud. And there's somebody listening. And he's a cat hater too, buddy. Hallelujah. I don't care if you're 74 years old and you cry Mayday, he's a cat hater. He'll come get the cat off of you. Old Mays Jackson said he was in school and this little kid spit on everybody and so he went over to him. He, he said, he said, buddy, I'm going to tell you when you spit on me, I'm going to whoop you. And he just hauled loose and spit on Mays. And Mays did what he said. He jumped right on him. Only trouble is he didn't know the boy had a brother, a big brother, hillbilly. So he said that little old boy got a little bit of freedom, stuck his head out of that fight and said, Brother! And he said, I got whooped then. He said, that big long-legged hillbilly just beat the tar out of me. He said, I never did bother that little old kid for spitting no more. That's what you'll have to do when you get in trouble. Ryan, little guy, seven seven, eight years old. Y'all listen, them little children back there. When you get in trouble, I'm just telling you, there's somebody listening. Help me, Lord. I preached the message the other day, Brother, Ron, Brother David, on the greatest statement you ever made in all your life. You know what it is? Lord, save me. That's the best thing you ever said in your life. You ain't got to figure out the Cliches or nothing else. God of Jeroboam, Rehoboam, and all the born boys. Lord, save me. I mean, you get over here in town somewhere and you get in a horrible, horrible mess going through Atlanta. It's a nightmare. Lord, save me. Put them angels right on there and get you through there. He won't let that line on you. Amen. Would you bow your head with me a minute? I don't know really how to ask. I don't know what kind of invitations. Anybody want to come and pray? Does there anybody in here want to come and say, Lord, help me to stay out of the claws of the devil 
If you want to, come on and pray. I'll just give you a few minutes. Preacher, don't mind. We're not going to push you. How many of you are going to remember my story about the squirrels the rest of your life? Raise your hand up. You'll never forget it, will you? Here's a man praying. If somebody would come and pray, come on, don't, don't be ashamed. I'm, I'm a grown man, but I have to cry mayday every now and then. He stays right by my side. The devil's just breathing down your throat, down your back every minute. God bless you. Look at him coming. Don't forget this little story. It really happened to me. It happened to me 65 years ago, 63 years ago. But it sure taught me a lesson, didn't it? Ask Him to help you stay out of the claws. Just one little innocent turn, it'll trap you, buddy. It'll put you in a trap nobody could get out of. What a horrible, horrible thing to end up. For those of you that haven't come, I'll tell you this little story. It's just short. A preacher friend of mine, the best friend I guess I have in the world, was 13 years old. They were going on the mountain to go in a cave together. They were all going to go up there and play on the mountainside. They walked around a little trail right beside a little old, little old country church stacked up on rocks. He walked about 25 or 30 feet past that church with his two buddies and he broke down and cried. He said, I'm going back. I said, what are you going back for? He said, I'm going back to that church and get saved. And he went in that church and the preacher was preaching something. He don't even know what he's preaching. He thought he never was going to give an invitation and got the end. He said, anybody want to come and pray? And Johnny said, I got up and went to that altar. I was preaching at his meeting about five or six years ago. Johnny's 10 years younger than me, 64. He got a phone call the day before that camp meeting opened. You know who it was? It's one of them boys called in prison. He got a call out of prison. He called Johnny. He said, Johnny, you remember when you turned back and went to church? He said, yep. He said, I felt like I should have went with you, and I didn't. Now I'm serving prison. I'll never be free from murder. I'll be in prison the rest of my life. A roaring lion. Come on, Brother David. Seeking whom he may devour.